Hi, welcome to another episode of Django Chat. I'm Will Vincent, joined by Carlton Gibson. Hi, Carlton. Hello, Will. And we're very pleased to have Sheena O'Connell join us for this episode. Welcome. Thanks. Hi, both of you. Thank you for coming so on, I Sheena. Think we met you at DjangoCon US. You gave a talk about all the work you're doing. Um, maybe just as a quick introduction, quickly, who, who are you and um, what's your involvement with, with Django, right? Who are you and why are you here? <laughs> okay, cool. Um, so Django was my introduction to Python, which is kind of cool. I... Um, yeah, many years ago, randomly had a Django project given to me, and I was like, I could do this, and <laughs> therefore learned the language. Um, the reason I got to DjangoCon was that I was talking about a thing that I built in, in Django. Um, basically, what I do for a living is I, I work for a nonprofit in South Africa, um, and our main stick has generally been to find high potential young people who um, who come from underserved communities, but who really have the like the the aptitude as well as the grit to succeed in a software engineering career or or another career as well. So we do all sorts of different training. We do like web development and data science and we do design and you and like um, copywriting and all sorts of different things. But um, I'm involved in the in the technical side of things. So we we find these high potential people and we effectively hire them and their job is to learn for a year. And then at the end of that year we get them into um, like real jobs somewhere. So we get them um, placed into different corporates and whatnot. Um, the Django part of that is that we have a custom-built learner management system that's built um, primarily with Django. Um, can I can I jump yeah. in with it? I've got like a whole load of questions about <laughs> that. But um, the most the, the one that jumps most to me to me is how. So okay, you 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 identifying what you called high potential individuals how on earth does one do that what's what does that look like oh, it's quite a long process so um the first thing we do is we find people who are keen so we advertise a lot and we do word of mouth things and that sort of thing um and people apply and they do some aptitude tests online and if somebody does well on the aptitude test it generally means like either you or someone you know has maybe the aptitude to take the stuff on so that is a challenge on its own you have a question <laughs> i do because aptitude tests are sort of famously biased mm. um in that you like you know take the, the classic iq test it, it turns out that what that 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 tests more than anything is were you schooled in a particular kind of middle class upbringing and blah blah it doesn't necessarily test any underlying attribute of the candidate but carlton the question is, is what's what's the alternative right i mean well, failed no, as it is yeah, no, I, yeah, yeah, of course. I believe yeah. that's the issue so i'm just wondering like how do like it's easy to test aptitude for for people who have had all the advantages because you just give them the standard tests do how do you try and work around that or do you i mean is i don't have any answers or questions it's just a question it's just like so that's just one one step in the process um so we use a bunch of different tests and a lot of it is also just like comprehension like can you read this text and answer simple questions about it and then there's some like spatial reasoning and some basic stats and things like that but it's not like um yeah it's not it's, it's not like super hard um from that, we take the people who 
perform the best and we we invite them to take part in a selection boot camp so that um so back in the day when we were in in person we used to actually just bus people into jeppe's town in johannesburg from all over the country and then they'd hang out with us for two weeks and we would assess their skills in person um but we don't do it do that anymore um now we have a online boot camp and basically what we do is we we get these um, these applicants loaded up onto our um, learner management system, and they um, they they behave as though they are already recruited into our program. So they'll have some cards on a Kanban board, and they need to move the things across the board. And the things that they do during this bootcamp are um, like we give them some basic code tutorials to do um, and we give them a bunch of carters to do which are like they're not super hard and if somebody's comes in with coding experience and they tend to do quite well in that um, we also get them to do some git things so um, we we've got like quite a cool git tutorial and then they they bump their heads on things like merge conflicts and need to figure that out um, and even people who do have some coding experience who are self-taught often haven't met that before and so the idea is to give them something that they'll have to learn like while they're with us um, and then if people do really well in all of that then it might still mean that someone they know has <laughs> has the ability to code and um, is helping them out this happens unfortunately quite a lot um so then after that we have a, a test um so we use a platform called codabyte which is really nice because you can run lots of tests for very cheap um and that's again just like a carter thing and we can detect certain kinds of plagiarism um and even then, <laughs> we, we're still nervous about letting the wrong people in. So we have a staff member interview the people who get through to the end. And it's very hard to cheat on this kind of thing. So what we'll do is we'll say, like the staff member will write some code that they made up just then and say, what does this do? Um, like, what is this going to print? And um, tweak the code as as the interaction continues to make sure that the learner kind of grasped all of the concepts that they demonstrated during the course of the, of the bootcamp. Um, and like that final interview is quite a, like, like that's the decision point in the end. Um, but one of the things we try really hard to do is just add value at every point in the program. So like, as soon as somebody gets into the bootcamp, we, we try and make sure that they're learning and growing, even if they don't get into our program. So if it, if they come to a point where they don't actually understand something, then the staff member will spend some time with them and try and get them to understand and be like, oh, you know, that was naughty, that thing you did when you wrote that code or gave us this code that you didn't write yourself. Mm -hmm. But let's see if we can get you to, let's see if we can get you to understand it. Um, so if somebody gets caught plagiarizing, we don't like throw them out. We'll say um, we can we can generally tell in this interview, like, look, you actually have the potential to pick this up. You just like please don't do that dumb thing again. Um, and we'll often take those folks and put them into some kind of bridging course and see how they do um, for a prolonged period of time before bringing them into a full course. Um, and that is, <laughs> that's the selection process. So it's quite a heavy thing. Yeah. It sounds like quite, like quite a lot of contact for, you know, to, yeah, yeah, it is for um, each individual candidate. It is, um, but it's worth it as well. Cause once we bring somebody into our program, we don't really 
like we look after them, you know, so if somebody's struggling, we'll help them and we'll just like keep on piling on staff hours with this person to, to lift them up. And like we have a wellness team that'll coach them and all sorts of stuff like that. So if we let in the wrong person, it ends up being like very expensive for us um, because yes. you can't just say like, oh yeah, just ignore that person. They, they can fail there by themselves. Um and it also ends up being quite unpleasant for the learner. If we if we let in the, long, the wrong person, they sign a contract with us for a year and then they're just like bashing their head on this thing that's not suitable for them for a year. It's, yeah, it's like all around unpleasant. So, yeah, we work very, very hard to <laughs> to find the right people. You said in the beginning of your DjangoCon talks, um, you, I can't remember the first thing you said you built. You said you build something and then you said you build people. And I was like, yes, that's... Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, that's that's the most important thing. So we build tools in order to build people, basically. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to link to the talk and try not to um, have you repeat it. But I one of the other things you mentioned, speaking of the wellness, was because it's underserved communities, you have courses on financial literacy and all these non-coding things that somebody who, as you said, you know, once they graduate is going to be the highest paid person probably in their family and trying to set them up for success, you know, beyond the screen yeah yeah um yeah that's yeah it's quite a big deal we actually um don't run those courses ourselves we have a partner who does it for us and that's just like another online course that we offer to all of our learners but it is a very very big leverage point i think so um yeah um if somebody comes from a very poor community in south africa then chances are um they they don't have the financial literacy to make good decisions with their very first paycheck. Um, and we are, we're not just about getting people jobs. We're about, you know, um, setting their lives up for um, <laughs> all sorts of good things. So we want to make sure that they don't make bad decisions as, as much as possible. Like go have some fun with your money, but um, <laughs> save up and look after the important stuff. Yeah, I believe um, to your background. I believe you you have a computer science degree. Is that right? It, no, I did um, um, electrical engineering. No, because because I, I was going to ask you you got you got given this Django project this and then you're like right I'm going to learn Python. Was that your first programming language or were you um, already? So I'd coded before. So I learned. Um, so I started coding when I was in schools. I learned Turbo Pascal as my first language, uh, which was <laughs> great fun. <laughs> um, and then after that. I learned C++. Um, I don't know if I learned C first or Python first. I, I don't remember. But uh, yeah, Python was something that, um, yeah, like once I started coding in it, I, I just loved the language. Um, yeah, so when I was in university, I picked up a lot of um, coding jobs just to eat and get by. Um, and that was my introduction to Python. It was, yeah. Okay. Well, I, I was mentioning that in the context of um, you're mentioning things around Git and doing all these tasks. I, th mm. I think still most undergrad computer science majors have no experience with mm. any of that, right? They they don't know how to build a, a Django site. They don't yeah. know how to use Git. So in many ways, you're teeing people up to you know succeed mm. um, more readily than someone from that formal background, uh, just because they're not get they're certainly not getting that training at school. Yeah, they can at a formal 
yeah, they can hit the ground running. Um, that's always been the the goal is to make sure that people, um, as soon as they get that first job, they're practical and useful. Um, I think the other thing to think about, or the other thing that I think about is um, if you put a person into a new job and they last the first like three months, then they tend to last for a longer, like a significant amount of time until, you know, something better comes along. Um, and so I'm like, all right, so what does a person need to know in order to not annoy their coworkers in the first three months? <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, it is a tough one. But, you know, when you, like, start working with a junior person and they just bump their head on Git for the first two weeks and you're like, ah, oh, <laughs> come on. Uh, so we just make sure that none of that stuff happens. We We take care of all of the things that their employer would need to teach them in the first three months. Um, or we try to at least. Um, it's hard to tick everybody's boxes and and whatnot, but um, I think we've got a very firm foundation built. Yeah. So um, we'll have links to all this, but the so the code is all open source. So it's tilde, right? Which yeah, I yeah. thought was a nice play on. You mentioned your talk, you know, yeah. Muzi's home, home. Um, yeah. Can we talk about the tech stack? I mean, oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, we, this sure is we a technical can. podcast. Yeah, yeah, all good. Um, so you, so you did. Did you start? Well, I just did. Did you start from scratch, or there was an existing thing? I think you. Um, we we had um, a syllabus already, and that was um, that was basically a Hugo static site. Um, so we had a bunch of markdown files, and and that was what we gave our learners to to work through, and that was generally managed like in person, um, we had spreadsheets, <laughs> you know, um, and some like random little scripts that managed those spreadsheets, but a lot of things were handled just in a very hands-on way. Um, later on, um, so, so when we went remote, um, I like, that's really all we had was, was the syllabus and some random scripts and it was in no way sufficient. Um, so, Tilda came out of that. Um, it wasn't an obvious thing to build initially. I think probably the hardest thing about building it was figuring out what we should actually build. Um, and then once it, uh, like once the solution was clear, it was like, oh, this is obvious. Let's let's build a Kanban board. Um, <laughs> so yeah, so the tech stack um, backend is Django um, and Django REST framework, and um, we use Dramatic for long-running requests. And then on the front end, React and Redux and some Saga stuff and uh, Material UI. So it's not um, it's not like out there in any way. It, I think like a lot of people have <laughs> Django and DRF on the back and then Re and and um, React on the front. Um, there are things that I would do differently if I were to start over again. A lot of it was built in a hell of a hurry. Um, so um, I think the the core of the the core of the application, the Django application, is this um, is the way we think about content. So our content is um, basically consumed as a bunch of um, configuration files for the Django app. So we've got all these markdown files and they've got front matter in YAML and um, we look at that YAML and think of it as a 
um, like a knowledge graph. So you can say in order to get the syllabus done, you need to do this project and this project has that project has a prerequisite. And since you're doing this in Python, you should do that in Python. Or since you're doing this in JavaScript, you should do that one in JavaScript. And so you've got these content um, items, we call them, and they can come in different flavors. And um, so from that um, kind of graph of knowledge, we generate people's, um, we generate some Kanban boards that people need to work through. Um, so yeah, yeah. <laughs> Go on. Can I ask? Because this is a fascinating question for me. Is like the um, Django and relational database. They work very well with the relational model, but a lot of the data structures are graph-like, and is always in this sort of impede because you can model a graph in Python in memory, but then how do you write that to disk? And how do you load? Like, how can I ask you to? explain a bit about how you're handling because I think it's a good challenge. So I don't know if we did it in the most elegant way possible and I think it is no, worth revisiting. No, no one but, <laughs> but yeah, basically we've got um, a table called content item and then we've got uh, another table for uh, marking like what is what which content item is a prerequisite of which other content item and is it like a hard prerequisite or not? Like is it a strict requirement or is it a nice to have? Um, and then from those two tables, um, um, we and then we have like a like a curriculum object as well that says like do these content items in a specific order. Then from that um, we generate a, a, a Kanban board for a learner. So we'll say, okay, cool, you've got these cards, and then that's just like a normal that no longer resembles a graph in the same way. Um, so we yeah so, yeah, yeah you've sort of flattened it, you've yeah, made yeah. it linear. Yeah yeah yeah. Um, yeah, so we don't have to do like crazy recursive queries except when we're generating a person's board. And then once the board is set up for that person, then they just need to move through it. Um, and do you do, can I just ask, do you serialize? So you do that calculation once and then serialize it in the database. So each time you just fetch yeah, yeah. the curriculum as it was generated. Yeah, okay, yeah, nice. Yeah, because nice. then we can add extra status information to the, the cards that show up on a person's board. So you can say, this is when you started the thing. This is when you requested a review. This is how it moved around. Um, here's the repo associated with your card. Um, yeah. Can, can I ask a little bit about your your previous background with Django? Because... Like we all talk about, you're like, oh, I needed to spin up this site and you listed a laundry list of technologies and it worked. And, you know, people who are new are like, wait, you can, you can, you know, build a Twitter clone in a weekend. Like, uh, so, so could you, could you fill in kind of your, the Django or web bit that kind of gets you to the place where you're like, yeah, I could build a Kanban board in a couple of weeks, you know, that is prototype and then scale it. Um, I'm gonna try and understand your question. Let me know if I'm going off on a tangent. <laughs> okay, so the, the question is your 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 um the web experience. You sort of mentioned you picked up programming okay. and doing um j jobs in college. You know, you know what gets you to the point where you you can do that. Can not just you can say you can just like spin up prototype anything, right? Because I think after however many years, you know any basic kind of crud thing like yeah i can do that in django but mm. you have to have done a bunch of stuff before mm. to get to that point yeah i think does that help with the question yeah yeah so it's it's sort of like what what experience do you need in order to get to a point where you can solve these sorts of problems um i guess i guess so yeah like like or like how many major sites have you built before or what what got you to that point because it differs by person right that's not a linear thing yeah it is um it, my career journey was not uh, linear or intentional in any way. Um, it was uh, very, very meandering. Um, I think um, I learned a bunch of web dev when I did that first Django app, but I also did like 
um, some like C sharp stuff once upon a time, and I've done PHP and um, some PHP front end stuff, and like a lot of pyramid work and some Flask work, and so I've, I've touched a lot of different um, frameworks for different reasons with different clients, and um, so I think I think the one thing is knowing like having an idea of the lay of the land and like what kind of tools are out there and the trade-offs between them is a big deal. Um, like, so, so that's like, a, I think that's a huge problem on its own worth solving for people. Cause like, if you don't know which tool to, to use, then you could just research that for ages. Um, then the other thing is knowing almost like the anatomy of a web app to say, okay, what is a backend? What is a frontend? Um, like, how do these things talk? Where does the code actually run? Um, and how, um, like, what are the trade-offs between, like, using a template, um, like something that's generated on the backend versus a React app? So I think knowing the, the like, how these different things can talk and how to make decisions about that is also a big deal. Um, <clears throat> and then once you know how to make those major decisions, it's like, um, you know which technologies you want, um, you know their major configuration, and then writing the code, it's almost like you've already solved the problem a lot of the time, and now you just need to write down the solution. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, does that... But it's, it's really... It's, uh, no, I, I mean, I'm not... I'm nodding. I, I concur. I just... I, when I was first learning, I, I just had no idea of what that roadmap is mm. for people. Yeah, it's... so like my talk, my talk at DjangoCon was about the roadmap being like yeah. kind of here is the yeah. the canvas of w what you laid out yeah. that you need to have some experience with, mm. and then it's a matter of picking and choosing, and mm. y'all figure out the details. But I kind of know yeah. the overarching structure of what I want to do, and um, I think that's cool. I, th I mean, that's great that you touch so many technologies, you know, because I do think some people, um you know, learn one thing and just stick with it. And then there's a little bit of like, oh, I don't want to do C, I don't want to do C sharp. Like, um, especially as maybe as you get more competent in a certain set of t tools, it's like, why, why would I change? And that's why, knock on wood, it's nice that Python and Django are still here because like, I'm not like, you know, I, I play around with new frameworks because it, it's fun, but I don't really want to have to go build a Rails <laughs> site, you know? Yeah, yeah. I think um, one thing that's interesting, I think, is that I, I actually stayed, so after I started working with Django and went and tried a whole lot of other technologies, I, I circled back to it very intentionally um, for this project because of the fact that I found Django to be a fantastic teacher when I was learning Python um, and when I was learning about web dev as well. I think one of the things that has frustrated me about Django is the fact that it is so opinionated. It means that like you have to deal with those opinions. And if you have your own opinion, then that can sometimes be like, like a little tricky. Um, but if you're a new programmer um, and you want to learn about web dev, then jumping in with a very opinionated framework is fantastic because then you get the opinions of all these like, you know, like really clever people who built the framework and thought really hard about it. And you get to, you know, walk that well-trodden path and, do something like you can build something effectively um, without having to make all those decisions as your first step. So, yeah, so chose it as, because it's a good teacher, um, partially because like a lot of the people who I work with are fairly junior. So it's like, okay, cool, guys, like learn Django, it's gonna serve you. Um, so, yeah, <laughs> it's 
well, the flip side of that exact point, though, is it's not just that when you're learning, it's when you're um, a, the senior and you need to mm. bring on juniors yeah. to have something where they don't have to be able to intuit what went on in your mind when you were stuck in your ivory tower writing yeah. your thing from scratch. Yeah. That's really kind of helpful. Yeah, it's yeah. Like, yeah here's, here's the Django app. Oh, yeah, yeah, I, I know how that works. Yeah, yeah. Scalable teams is a big deal. Yeah. Um, that's awesome. Well, the, the fact that, like, you know, Carlton and I can look at the code base and very quickly kind of know how it's structured. Whereas, let me pick on Flask, right? Like, that's not the case. Yeah, yeah. Everybody's right? got their so own flavor. It, yeah, yeah. It, it makes that... <laughs> or back in the, the back in the day, homebrew micro framework I broke myself. It's like, uh, even worse. Oh, yeah. Forget that. Forget that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, we just interviewed um, last week um, Craig Kirsten's of uh, Cr Crunchy Data. And, and he was... We were quizzing him on kind of Rails and Django because he's a lot of experience with both. And he was making the point that Rails is more opinionated, but Django has more batteries actually under the hood, um, which I thought was quite nice to, you know, okay, yeah, it's a, you know, because Rails is like, wow, it just works. But I hadn't really thought about like the built-in auth and the actual batteries part um, is very strong in Django. You know, it sometimes I wish maybe for beginners it had more opinions actually, but, um, you know, the batteries just take for granted. Whereas every time I touch another framework, I'm like, wait, you don't have an admin? You don't, like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, what are you doing here? <laughs> yeah, build that from, by hand, <laughs> yourself. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, do, you have, do you have a question, Carl? I, I saw, so you got Kubernetes in here. I have to ask about deployment. And like, that seems like, um, that it's not a simple, that's not a small step to go to Kubernetes. So how did you make that decision? And So I had Kubernetes experience before, um, which was quite helpful. And um, yeah, like learning it from scratch under pressure might not have been the best uh, situation, um, but it was it was useful to know already. Um, and I also had experience with um, making use of auto scaling things like Google App Engine and how that can go terribly wrong um, if you use it inappropriately, um, because auto scaling things can become quite expensive. Um, and so I was like, okay, cool. Um, App Engine is really, really nice for front-end things, which is why I'm still using it for the front-end of the application. Um, so the React app is running there. But um, the Kubernetes stuff, I, I wanted control over... Um, yeah, I just wanted control over how many instances of the Django app were running, and I didn't want to have to, like, fiddle with a virtual machine and, like, a Docker composition or, um, yeah, just uh, Kubernetes just fits, <laughs> fits in my head <laughs> a little bit. So you're running on um, Google Cloud Platform? Yeah, there. yeah, yeah. And so you're, so you're using the managed Kubernetes service? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, right. So that's, that's not... There's two things when That's you run Kubernetes. Yeah. No, but there's two things when you run Kubernetes. Like, please, can you run my my pod? Yes, I can run your pod. No problem. I'd like four of those pods. That's one thing. The other thing is setting up the cluster. Yeah, yeah. That. So and, I didn't set up you know. the cluster myself. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I pushed. The Which buttons. is just like a madness <laughs> yeah. design. Why are you doing this? Yeah, yeah. That um, I do prefer managed services <laughs> very much. <laughs> yeah. We're all in agreement. This is a managed service um, stand show here. We, oh yeah. Easier, yeah. Uh, one of the other um, tech cool things you noted in your talk was um, the the project cards, where when someone you create a GitHub repo, automatically protect the main branch. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because that was really cool to me. Um, yeah. How you automate that and awesome. Um, yeah. So basically, the way our philosophy for teaching is 
we want to make professionals. And so we want to simulate a professional environment as much as possible. And if you are a developer working on a team of developers on some realistic project, you're not just going to push to the main branch or willy-nilly. You're going to push to a different branch and you're going to make pull requests or merge requests. Um, and so we wanted to get that feel for, for the learners. Um, and we also wanted to make use of GitHub's um, lovely um, like review functionality. Um, so basically what we have is um, we've got this Kanban board and different cards on that board behave in different ways. And there are these cards called repo project cards. And um, if a learner like chooses to start one of those, then the card will pop across into the next column. But in the background, yeah, we create a repo for them. Um, and we it's a private repo. And they are added to, as a collaborator, the main branch is protected. Uh, there's a little bit of a readme added in there for them. Um, and now they get to start contributing code um, in their own branch. Then um, other learners get to review this. So... Um, one thing that coders need to do in life is review each other's code, read code that you didn't write, have an opinion on it, um, give and receive constructive feedback. So once a learner has finished a specific project, let's say, um, I don't know, um, I don't know, just some project where they have to build a thing and now somebody else is doing the same project and they have to build the same thing. Some... A, a pass, password thing, right? Yeah. That's what you use in your example, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. Like a password checker. Yeah, yeah. So it's like a little password checker project. Um, and uh, so if somebody has finished the password checker project, then they are allowed to review other people's password checker projects um, and they can be added as, as reviewers. It's, it's sort of like a random allocation of like who you're going to review um, so long as you've done the work. And <clears throat> then they can merge the pull requests and help people get their cards across the board. So that's, yeah, that's pretty fun. <laughs> yeah, that I, I love the, you know, automating and just getting a learner set up to focus on what you want instead of all the other yeah. cruft that we have to deal with yeah, as yeah. programmers that isn't yeah isn't primary. Yeah, yeah. I think um, there are a couple of extra benefits to getting the learners to review each other. Like one obvious one is that it saves our staff members time, so it makes our jobs like way way easier because we don't have to always say you know point out the obvious stuff. Um, but from the learner's perspective, they get that experience of giving receiving feedback, which is great. But they also get the experience they get the benefit of like um, spaced repetition in their learning. So they have to revisit things that they wrote, um, but, but now it's written in a slightly different way and now they have to understand it. And that's um, a pretty good way to make sure that they do absorb as many concepts as possible. Um, so that's, yeah, pretty cool. I think as well that uh, reading code and understanding code is, is the, by far the biggest part of the actual job, you know, You'd spend some time writing it, but re realistically, if you just spend your entire training period writing code and then you get put into a job where you get to write, um, uh, I got two hours actually doing some code. No, to have to review it, I think that's lovely. I think it's a really good thing. Well, that, that reminds me of the saying that, sorry, Carlton, one last thing, and then I, I know I've been talking. Um, uh, Jeff Triplett, um, who works at RevSys, often has said that he gets paid to write tests, not code, because when he goes, you know, he gets parachuted into a code base that's on fire. He's like, where you know, where you know, where the tests are like, let's write better tests. So so much of it is, yeah, writing tests at a professional level, like actually writing greenfield new code 
is quite rare. And the more senior you get, the less you do that because your time is better spent reviewing and, mm. and yeah, orchestrating rather than you know actually building the the thing itself, which is sort of you know in a way doesn't make sense. But with experience, you're like, oh well, that's that's kind of where the value add is is being in that review capacity as opposed to just even though it's you know fun to. You need to write your own code too sometimes, yeah. right? Like, <laughs> Greenfield you can't stuff just only review fun. people's code. Yeah, yeah. Um, something that I often find, I uh, something I often end up doing is just swooping in and writing a chunk of code um, that has almost gaps in it um, for somebody else to to complete. Um, and that also works pretty well, especially on front-end stuff. I'll just, um, I don't know, build um, some new functionality, but it's like the padding's all wrong and it's a little bit like squonk. It's like, okay, guys. <laughs> Here are some guardrails, <laughs> and that works pretty well as well for <laughs> onboarding new people. <laughs> yeah, that's a nice word, squonk. I'm going to use that. <laughs> so, I had a couple of questions about the pedagogy. One is that um, I think you say you're adding start, you know, start dates, spend dates. You've got this Kanban board that the curriculum is kind of like that. Um, how do you find that as um, helping people along because sometimes I find people um, you know if there isn't a kind of nice structure they kind of just drift away not meaning to but there's just not the discipline to do that so that would be my yeah. first question is yeah that's that is a big keeping deal momentum that, going. so if we were a purely asynchronous remote course without any like human interaction then I do think we'd have pretty high drop-off rates because that's that's a normal thing. I think Coursera has something like a 7% completion rate. Maybe that's generous even. I'm not sure. Um, and I think that that's pretty generous. Yeah. So, so from what I've heard. Yeah, it's pretty bad. And um, there's lots of reasons for it. But um, I think one thing so so we've got a whole lot of different things that we do to keep people on track um the first thing to know is that we are self-paced so um we don't we don't try to make everybody do the same project at the same time or sit in the same situation at the same time um but we do um we do have stand-ups every day so we've got um little baby scrum masters we call them scrumlings um <laughs> hope they don't <laughs> yeah <laughs> And they they run a lot of the standups um, and help the learners like plan out their week um, and spot any kinds of problems that might be happening. Um, and so that's the one like major interaction we have is just like every day people will say like this is what I'm working on and this is where I'm stuck and and that kind of thing. Um, but then we'll also keep an eye on their pace. So if it looks like somebody is falling behind, like we know on average how long each project takes and we know how much time we have with people. So we can say, oh, it looks like if you continue like this, you're probably not going to finish in time. Um, so how can we, like, what can we do? Um, and sometimes just telling the person, like, look, you've got to pick up the pace is enough. Um, sometimes they need extra support in different ways. Um, so that's, yeah, so that, those are the main accountability things um we've also got all sorts of different um interventions for different kinds of different kinds of things so um one th so there's all sorts of different pitfalls that junior coders tend to fall into when they're self-taught um so one thing for example is that um if somebody is self-taught they'll often think that print and return are the same thing and the reason for that is because of REPLs, um, because they, they learn to code in a REPL and they have a function that returns a thing and then they, they run the function and it's like, look, it printed. That, 
and and so um, there's all sorts of um, little weird things like that that we've noticed. Um, so we'll have um, like mini workshops just on those concepts. So it's like, all right, cool. We're just going to like sit with one staff member and three learners for 45 minutes. And we're just going to make sure everybody freaking nails the difference between return and print. <laughs> and, and then once that's done, it actually solves a lot of problems. So, so you know, it'll be return and print and some other like how functions interact. And um, just because you're printing the returned value twice doesn't mean you're calling the function twice and and like yeah there's all sorts of like weird little pitfalls that people fall into um yeah so we we aim to like nail those very very early um yeah you have a question so that's as important knowledge as well i would think that there's there's just like really understanding how a function works in terms of what happens when you pass the the the, the, the arguments in and are they by reference or value and you know is it a reference or value type and then what happens if you don't return anything is it like what what's the return value of a function without you know they're kind of low level stuff but actually learning those is really important yeah and while we're teaching that we're also trying to teach people how to experiment with code and how to assess their own understanding of things so we always like follow the same sort of process when exploring the stuff we'll, like the staff member will write a little simple piece of code and say hey learners what do you think this is going to do and they'll each like tell say what they think and you'll write that down and then you'll run the code and then you'll write some code and then ask them what they think and then run the code. And that's the way we explore the topics. And it's like, look, you can actually do this yourself. We don't actually have to do this for you. You can explore like this. Look, you just made a random change and you took another guess. Like, cool. <laughs> and um, the people who click onto that way of self-assessment, um, they tend to do really, really well. And that really fits the Python model of like iterative exploratory. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so that's... Um, okay, nice. Yeah. <laughs> um, Go on. Yeah. I had another question. Go for it. Which was just about um, what you think about this new wave of AI tools that are coming along. So um, Codepilot and um, the, the, the chat one that's been out this week that people have been talking about. I mean, is that, is that a worry for plagiarism and people sort of um, hacking the, 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 the course content? But also, is it a tool that you think is useful for people in their careers so i haven't personally used them uh, it's something that i want to explore um i think for junior coders it's probably a bit of a danger to get too reliant on them so something so one problem that exists that i've noticed <laughs> i think it's i think it's probably everywhere but um that happens a lot in our education system like the South, Af the South African education system is a bit of a mess, really. Like it's it's nonsense. Um, and people come out of that system thinking that memorizing and understanding are the same thing, um, and it's really not. <laughs> and so I think that's pretty yeah. that's pretty universal, uh, unfortunately. It's so annoying. <laughs> um, and so snapping people out of that is really really hard. Yeah. Um, and the other thing that's challenging is things like illusions of competence where you read the code, you run the code and you're like, yeah, I could have guessed that. And then you think that you can write the code, but you can't because um, you've just stroked your own ego instead of actually assessing your own ability to do the work. Um, and then there's people who are so focused on moving their, their, their cards to the, the complete column that they don't necessarily um, put in the time to understand everything. They just want to get things done quickly so they can look cool. Um, and so I do worry um, about people making use of those kinds of tools while 
learning if they if it just ends up giving them perceptions of being able to do things that they can't do um yeah that's that's a big deal um so so yeah it's a concern and i generally actually tell the learners to <laughs> to not rely on that stuff for their projects um like they can play with it and it's cool and maybe maybe some kind of co-generating thing will come up with something that they can learn from but they shouldn't be reliant on it um yeah have you guys used that those sorts of tools i've played with uh, copilot um or copilot or whatever it's called and i like it for writing um boilerplatey stuff like um bootstrapping unit tests fix um that kind of thing it's awesome but like when i'm when i really want to think i have to turn it off because i'm like no 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 because it's like it's like um pair programming with someone who's drunk is it looks <laughs> right and it's fine and then you realize that it's it's massively wrong and it's like no no, no. if i just if i you know if i just tab through there it would look as if I, it was right and it just isn't there's logic errors and it's like so so you know when you're trying to think you just you don't want that distraction but yeah if i'm trying to write a unit test and it's the same as the other 40 unit tests in the file and i don't want to have to write out 30 lines of boilerplate it's super for that i'm i'm sure they'll improve with time but i'm just interested in i think the points you made about the comprehension and the understanding and that false sense of competence that's that's an interesting viewpoint i hadn't considered so i like that yeah i would agree with you i i spent quite a while i don't think i mentioned this before uh talking with simon wilson at DjangoCon about these ai tools i mean specifically the was a dolly the image generation but because he's like you know really interested in all that um and then he was with copilot he was mentioning that he uses it all the time and the thing is you know he said you know half the time it's rubbish and half the time it's correct but you know it'll return like code he wrote because it's like pulling from django right so i think i agree that like if you're simon willison like sure like it's just like sort of interesting and you like immediately pick up on like oh that's wrong but for an average person yeah it's the i think it's dangerous actually um it's yeah the drunk programming and certainly for a beginner i think you don't you don't you don't want the crutch it's it it's really not helpful um but it was it's interesting to you know i was like of all the people who don't need this and he's like no no it's cool i just always type it in and you know by wonder yeah so i would also advise people to you know to play with it but uh, yeah i think there's going to be some tricky things there other than the more mundane tasks but yeah in a couple of years like maybe maybe the new frameworks will be you know there'll be like an ai framework and we'll all be focusing on some other part of the web stack right i mean Probably. Yeah, yeah. I, I can't imagine it getting way, <laughs> way better than it is now. Um, yeah, but it is still, I think it'll always be a thing where you should learn your basics, probably. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, actually, the testing might actually be an area where it's easier to you know, have it generate stuff and you can kind of look and see, like, I don't you know. Anyways, I, speaking of testing, I wanted to ask you, so you use on your stack um, drone, drone IO, right, for your continuous integration, like, could you talk through just the testing or just change, but just your testing strategy and how it's changed over time? Um, so, yeah, it's it's slightly more chaotic than I'd like it to be, um, but it is what it is. <laughs> so um, our test coverage on the back end is quite high, um, like it's like very high. Um, so that's that's pretty solid. Um, if somebody makes a pull request, the tests have to pass. And before we deploy the tests have to pass. Um, we 
yeah, so nothing nothing fancy. It's just um, standard unit tests that need to pass at different points. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> so testing strategy, you might be also referring to like TDD versus not. Um, we're not too fussy about like if you write your tests first or later or anything like that, um, so long as the code is properly tested. Um, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, it's it's a very broad question. With your current stack, you're using Hugo. I think you've mentioned maybe you would revisit that that decision. Like, what what do you make of static site generators like Eleven T and others? What like what would you use today if you were starting from scratch with static site generator? So for a long time, I was thinking I should move towards Eleven T um, because it's um, it's sort of like low level in a way in that it's it just relies on web components and. It, yeah, it's just like a very elegant little thing. It's like small and it's very easy to understand. And the code is all in JavaScript and I, I'm pretty good at JavaScript. So that helps. Um, so we were using um, Hugo initially um, and it seemed like a good idea at the time, but I think the version that we... Uh, the version that there was at the moment is pretty unstable. So as soon as we wanted to upgrade it at all, like even... a by 0.01, then it would be like, oh, now things are broken and we have to fix them. Um, and that was well, a little bit frustrating. It's JavaScript. I mean, what do you expect? Oh, oh Hugo's in Golang, <laughs> which is... No, no, Hugo. Oh, yeah, 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 no, Hugo is... Oh, I thought you were talking about 11T. Yeah, JavaScript. I'm just going to get like, digging on JavaScript. <laughs> it's totally acceptable. Like, every time I have to write significant JavaScript, I have to go take a shower afterwards. It's, it's a messy language. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but <laughs> but it's also um, yeah it's it's also solid in a lot of ways. Um, so I've done some playing with Eleven T, and it seems very very capable and very um, yeah like easy to extend in different ways, which is really cool. Like Hugo, I, like I hardly ever write Go code, like practically never. And so if I want to do anything interesting, then it's a bit of a mission. Um, and so interesting things don't happen. Um, whereas with 11T, it would be much, much easier. I'm actually also thinking about Next um, because you can also do static site generation with Next and um, it's got the full power of React. So it's heavier again, but it's also, you can do all sorts of cool things with it. So that's an option because it would be nice for the contents itself to be a bit more interactive. So right now we've just got markdown files. It comes out as text with some pictures and some videos and things like that, but it's um, maybe it would be cool to have a little quizzy thing or um, some interactive content. Um, so I think maybe next would be better for that sort of thing. Um, so it is going to change at some point, but it's not like the highest priority um, thing on the list right now. It's difficult as well because these framework decisions they come with a lot of overhead in terms yeah, of each yeah. time you switch, you yeah. know. And you so you got to you got to choose carefully, you know. You got to when you do go, you have got to say, okay, we can commit to this for you know a period time. of time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We chose Hugo like years and years and years ago, and at the time, it probably like from what I knew at the time, it seemed like a good idea. It seemed like the best bet. Um, but yeah, there's there's different things now and things that seem more appropriate that now. Point, yeah. That point about not, not using Go very often, it's like whenever you've got like multiple texts in the stack, it's like the, the, the one on the edge where you don't use it very often. Every time you go back to it, you're like, oh, I've got to remember all that. And you see the, the velocity is just so slow. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's got like that mental hurdle that you 
like, ah, okay, <laughs> getting into it. Got to block out a week. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but that's one of the benefits of Next because it's just React. Well, it's React with um, other bells and whistles and our front ends React. So it's not like super different. It's not like a whole other thing. Um, so that's that's cool. Gatsby is also available, but I think React, uh, I think Next is maybe nicer. Yeah. <laughs> remix, seems, right? If we want to get. Yeah, I haven't used Remix. Next seems to have the mind share. Next seems to have the mind share at the moment. Yeah. It seems yeah, to it be, does. you know, it's always, yeah. a, 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 it's always an up and down thing with JavaScript worlds, but like, you know. That your Hugo story is, is bringing back memories because six years ago when I was at a startup, we had a, I, someone had started and I had to gin up the blog using um, Hugo and it was exactly like that. It was like, oh, this is fast and it's cool. But anytime I did anything, I was just like, oh God, I don't really want to be an expert in another language. Like, <laughs> which maybe it's not the worst thing because you just sort of leave it alone and just post content. And um, But it's it's nice to stick to Python JavaScript if you can, just because one, one less thing to worry about. But anyways, yeah, I agree. It's, yeah, it, I don't think it's quite the hotness that it was. Um, pandas, you're... Are you using pandas in the project in um, some way? Like, so, can you... so it is being used, not by me personally, um, but basically we've got another repo off to the side um, that our data folk um, deal with. And it's got a tilde client API thingy in there um, that they can fetch data from tilde and put it into a data frame and do what they need to from that. Um, <clears throat> so from that, we do things like figure out how long different cards are meant to take and spot different kinds of outliers and spot different kinds of problems. Um, yeah, so, so there's a bunch of random things happening there or like syncing data from tilde into things like Airtable because a lot of our non-technical staff live on Airtable. And so we get data dumps and put it into Airtable and then they can um, wrangle it how they want to and make reports and send emails to partners and things like that. So um, yeah, uh, Pandas is, is handy for all of that kind of thing. Do you, um, is it one cohort goes through over a year and then you have another one each time? Is it, it's like that as opposed to Continuous. So everything's pretty overlapping. Um, we generally take in a cohort um, every couple of months. Um, and it's nice because of the, the fact that they review each other. So there's overlap and one cohort will be a little bit more senior to the next cohort and they'll be able to help out. Um, we even have things called JTLs, which are junior tech leads. Um, so we'll generally take like a more advanced learner and then um, get them to sit in the stand-ups of a more junior cohort so that they can um, like have an opinion on things. And that also works quite nicely. Um, so yeah, that overlap is is really handy. If or when is there time for the team to go, okay, a cohort's graduated, let's revisit and potentially change things. It sounds like it, that has to be more continuous too because yeah. you're just constantly having people go through. So that maybe... I guess it would always be nice to have a month to think about things, but yeah, not, yeah. it's not a, not, not a real world situation. <laughs> yes, that's what holidays are for. <laughs> um, so a funny thing is that I actually work with my brother. So he started off volunteering at a Muzi and um, then I was like, oh, I want to hire my brother. Will it be dodgy? And they're like, yeah, it'll be dodgy, but we like him. 
you should hire your brother. And then my boss hired my brother, which is <laughs> better. Um, and But he's great. Like, he works freaking hard. And he's he's not a techie. He's more like a management type of person. So we're actually quite a good team in that way. Um, now he doesn't work in, like, it's complicated. But a lot of major decisions were made in, like, random caves in the Drakensberg. Because, <laughs> uh, like, away from work having a nice hike, sitting in a cave somewhere, like, oh, I just thought of something. <laughs> and, um, so, yeah, sometimes getting away from the, the daily grind is, yeah, critical. <laughs> it helps a lot. Um, but, yeah, other than that, reflection happens, yeah. Oh, reflection is just a, a constant thing, yeah. Right, it's like a active equilibrium as opposed to, a you know, going off to a mo- monastery or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, speaking of external things, I I did see from your CV that um, you've, I guess not not as much now, but you had done Brazilian jiu-jitsu at quite a high level for a while. I was just, I my daughter has re- recently gotten really into it. And um, I was, that seems like the kind of thing people, once they get to it, they don't usually step away, especially if they're as accomplished as you were. So I'm just curious, you know, how, what was that like? And because it seems like a natural fit for a programming mind, right? It's, it's through, you're solving problems. And that's for my daughter, uh, who's 10. She likes the intellectual aspect of it um, as opposed to just run har- run harder or, or, you know, th- the fact that it's solvable fits her mind quite well. Yeah, it's super cool. Um, yeah, it's a puzzle. Um, and I love how many subtleties the different moves have and the little tweaks that you can make to things to, to make them more effective. It's, uh, yeah, you can really geek out about BJJ for ages. It's super cool. Um, yeah, so I started it um, randomly. So I've always been a climber, um, and I wanted to do something else besides climbing. Um, and this mixed martial arts gym opened up near my place, and I was like, let me go see what that's about. And uh, BJJ was part of what they taught, and it just stuck. Um, so I ended up getting like seriously into it. I've competed internationally. I am... Um, so I'm the world runner up at Blue Belt, <laughs> which was, um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, like not, not a small thing. Yeah, I was a mission. <laughs> yeah, it was hard work. Um, yeah, so that was, so at the time when I was training for that, I was working for a FinTech and it was just a very, very intense time. So I was like, wake up, um, like go for a run or something, go to work, work like freaking hard then go train you know so it was just like that was all that was happening and go choke choke, <laughs> choke a couple people yeah. out and go to sleep right and just yeah but it was very very non-stop and then um afterwards i needed a break i was just like okay i just need to like step away from this for a moment because i've been too completely obsessed and then my gym closed and my very favorite coach moved to um, Germany and I haven't found like another home gym um, that quite fits um, my personality I suppose um, yeah I'm actually thinking very seriously about getting back into it um, next year because my original like first gym ever um, is nearby and I just like haven't been able to get back into it like I haven't been able to build up the habit again um, yeah it's I don't know my own head sometimes. Like I really loved it for for a really long time, but I haven't I haven't managed to like find refine the love for it um, in the same way. I think when you're 
so committed. You you need a a full reset to kind of enjoy it for itself, as opposed to yeah. I mean, I'm thinking of something in my life, like to get the competitive part out of it and rediscover the the primal part, because it's hard not to just switch the mode into like I need to be good and do all these things, and then it kind of leads to the things that led you to go away in the first place, as opposed to the initial interest. Yeah, yeah. Um, that is a big deal. Just to bring it back to that playful way it used to be. Um, would be nice. Um, I think it was also, I don't know, my, my coach was fantastic. I find that I can push myself incredibly, incredibly hard if I'm like involved, like if there's, um, I don't know, if there's somebody on my team that's also doing that. So when I got my medal, I tried to give it to my coach, but he didn't want it, <laughs> which was a bit of a, um, yeah, it was a bit weird, but yeah, he's such a great guy. Um, <laughs> gosh. <laughs> yeah, it's super cool that your daughter's into it. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, I think the habit, the habit, the the point about habit is that if once you drop the habit, it's really hard to pick it back up. It's like, it's you know, it's, you miss one and then, oh dear, it's really easy then to miss the next one. And then, it, but to be in that routine of like, no, this is what I do. This is what I am. I, I am a jujitsu or I am a, Tai Chi or I am a, you know, this. I know you're looking at me, Carlton. I'm just a parent. I, yeah, I was going to say, what are you? I, I, <laughs> no, yeah. No, I had, well, I bring, I have to bring my, um, my two-year-old son and he's watching the, you know, the, the sessions and he's, he asked me the other day, he's like, he's like, daddy, you exercise? And I was like, you know, no, I pay money and watch other people exercise with, at this stage of life. So, but he was like, he's like, you do that? I was like, no, no. <laughs> but now he, now he wants to, you know, he wants to do everything they do. So he's, you know, yeah. Anyways, yeah, it's a, it's a good. It seems like a good activity. So I'm pleased my my daughter's into it. And then I just, okay, world runner up. Like, oh, like yeah. No, that's super. Yeah, that's super impressive. Um, are there any any things you wanna as we wrap up? Any things you wanna promote or things people can do to help Muzi or publicize? Um, nothing offhand actually that I can think of. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think uh, I think that's, that's, that's fair good. enough. I mean, it's, yeah. Don't go on. If you've got something else to say, I was just going to say thank you to Sheena for coming on because I've really enjoyed the chat. And uh, but if you've got something else yes, to say, I say thank first. you. And I, I was I was going to say I was um, thank you for coming to DjangoCon. Like you know the fact this is why these communities exist. That and then you were around for some of the sprints as well. I mean. I think for all of us, uh, I think, I don't know if I, had you been to a DjangoCon before no, or a US one? No, that was my very, very first. Um, yeah, it was a very good experience. The Django community was just lovely. Yeah. Um, oh, actually. Because it's a big, you know, time and money thing to go. So Yeah, yeah, it is. It, uh, <laughs> yeah, it was, it was <laughs> but a bit of a pricey place, America, um, but it was totally worthwhile. I'm I'm happy that I went, um, made some new friends, went on some adventures. So, yeah, very very worthwhile. Um, DjangoCon Africa is happening next year, and that's going to be cool. So um, we've just started organizing it, and there hasn't been one yet. Um, so I think it's probably going to be in around November next year. Not sure which country yet, um, but stay tuned. It should be cool. Yeah, because it was going to be before the pandemic, and then. And then, yeah. And then, and then the pandemic. So. Yeah, yeah. But that's really exciting. Mm. All right. Well, again, thank you for thank you for coming for coming on. We're gonna have links to everything in the show notes, so everyone should check think, check it all out. Um, 
Uh, we are at DjangoChat.com. Chat Django on Twitter, I guess, if that's still around. Are we on, are we on, are we on the are we on the Freddyverse Yeah, can yet? we have Vasa done? Yeah, yeah, we... Are we? Well, I guess I don't one know. of us needs are to do we? that. <laughs> we'll find out. Uh, we, may, we may or may we not be, be on the Freddyverse as well, folks. <laughs> we will be. We will be. I'm... I'm personally done with Twitter, so uh, we're going to move over there. So, uh, Okay. Anyways, DjangoChat.com. <laughs> Thanks, everyone. Yeah, cheers, uh, guys. Take care. See you next time. <laughs>